Okay, welcome back. We're ready to begin again. So please go ahead and take your seats. Great, one of the ongoing controversies in our field of HIV is uh, neurologic involvement, particularly as we begin to think about cure strategies, we think about the brain as a novel reservoir. Uh, we're really fortunate to have our next speaker is Serena Spudich, who is professor of neurology. She is a nationally recognized HIV neurologist. Uh, she's based at Yale, so not too far up the road. And Serena is going to update us on HIV in the brain. Serena, welcome back. Thanks very much, Tripp. Um, and yes, so I um, have no relationships with any commercial entities, but do have NIH grants that I should probably disclose. Um, there's a couple of learning objectives here, and I think that for this audience, I'm really hoping this is going to be interesting, stimulating, and raise a lot of questions for you. So first of all, I'd like to um, have you think about how potential HIV reservoirs may be established in the brain, and then how we monitor for a syndrome that we're going to talk about called CSF escape in patients who may have neurological symptoms and treated HIV. And finally, describe some of the potential effects of some of the um, kind of strategies uh, trying to address and trying to come up with HIV cure or HIV remission that are along the pipeline for our patients and for study participants in the coming years. So this is a um, question that is um, sort of, I think, a, a type of a patient that's increasingly presenting to our clinics. This is a question about a patient who's on treatment, on antiretroviral therapy, with new onset difficulty with walking and some stuttering of his speech. I actually have this exact patient in my clinic at Yale. A brain MRI is done and is normal. You tell him that the first step in his management should be, and you can see the choices there, and I'm going to start the clock. Okay, so we'll see what people say. Okay, all right. Um, so this is a um, great set of answers. I think number one, it looks like a lot of people think that the patient should first be referred to neuropsychological testing. We can talk about that. Um, and then about a third of you think that the patient should have an LP looking at the CSF. So we're gonna answer this again at the end. Um, so I saw in Tripp's survey earlier today that there are probably zero neurologists in the audience, although there was 1% psychiatry. Um, and so I thought I would start this talk by starting actually outside the brain to think about why is it that we should be worrying about the brain and what the kind of concept of a reservoir is. And this is really brought up by this first patient, the Berlin patient, the first and only patient of something like 79 million people who have been infected with HIV, who's known to be actually cured. And as you guys know, it's a one and only case, but the case has really galvanized an entire field. And there's been a huge amount of effort of investigators, of patient communities, of um, funding organizations to try to look to see whether or not we can cure HIV. And this is a patient who was infected with HIV, was on treatment, um, received, unfortunately, a diagnosis of uh, leukemia, acute leukemia, and had two subsequent stem cell transplants, bone marrow transplants. And in the course of this, a transplant with a CCR5 uh, Delta 32 negative donor 
um, and a variety of other treatment regimens with his chemo, radiation, et cetera, uh, has HIV cure. So the issue here is this is a patient who underwent a huge amount of a highly toxic treatment, including radiation and um, probably turnover of most of the cells in his body where HIV could be harbored and was cured. But most of the upcoming cure um, interventions and strategies are really going to be much, much more targeted. And most of those cells that are targeted in those strategies are the CD4 T cells. So the question is, do we have to be worrying about any other tissue types or any other reservoirs for HIV when we're thinking about cure? And this is where the question of where the reservoirs are for HIV in the body. So this patient is now doing well off treatment, but now we're wondering whether or not we can accomplish this by other strategies that may be less invasive. So I think there are several key questions that I'm going to go through during the course of this talk. First of all, are there HIV reservoirs um, in the CMS compartment in the brain during HIV treatment? Number two, if there are, when in the course of disease are these established? Are they early? Are they late with advanced disease? How will cure interventions, some of these cure strategies, do we have to wonder about how they're going to impact the brain? And finally, how do we optimize brain health in our patients? And that's really a big question with a lot of, a lot of questions, but I can take a stab at it. So this is a patient, and unfortunately, although I'm really an optimist who thinks that for the most part our patients are well-treated and suppressed, and there have minor complications of HIV. Unfortunately, as recently as just of March of this year, um, I had a new consult on a 40-year-old man with leg weakness and balance difficulty, vague cognitive symptoms, and urinary incontinence. This gentleman was not on treatment, so unlike the question that I asked you earlier, this patient was um, ART naive, and he had been untreated for about eight years, as far as we know. He had a high plasma viral load of 1.7 copies, uh, 1.7 million copies per mil, and a low CD4 count of 31. He had extensive evaluation, including CSF testing. Again, this is a patient who's not on treatment, but his CSF viral load was greater than 10 million copies per um, ml, so 10 times greater than what we saw in his plasma. And his MRI scan was significantly abnormal. This is an MRI showing changes where the patient has brain atrophy. His ventricles and brain sulci are too large. He also has these patchy white matter changes around his ventricles, which are really classic for this condition. So this is a patient who's presenting with untreated HIV and a major complication in the CMS of HIV-associated dementia. And I think that all of us in the room know that since the beginning of the epidemic, CNS involvement with HIV has been a hallmark of disease, and in some people, a very uh, specific sort of particular manifestation of HIV is CNS disease, and in some cases, really high levels of HIV replicating in the brain. But this is the, basically the old story. This is what we know happens in people with really advanced disease, and a minority of people develop HIV dementia. But what's happening in people who are now well-treated? How is this different when you put people who get HIV infection on, anti on antiretroviral therapy? Do we still need to worry about a pocket of potential HIV infection in the nervous system compartment? So in order to think about this, I'm going to walk you through um, a sort of schematic that I've developed to try to explain how we think HIV really invades the brain and causes problems there. And this is supposed to show in the bottom, in the red or the pink, is the blood compartment, and the white is all the CNS or the brain compartment. And really, we thought for a long time that HIV enters the CNS through sort of an old Trojan horse type of mechanism, where infected T cells and possibly infected monocytes cross the blood-brain barrier and carry virus into the CNS. 
when those infected and activated cells enter, they actually release chemokines and cytokines, which attract more cells, more inflammatory cells into the CNS. First of all, establishing sort of a cascade of neuroinflammation in this compartment, and also, of course, attracting in more infected cells. So it becomes a sort of vicious cycle where more inflammation begets more infection. We also know that there's some blood-brain barrier breakdown that happens in response to the entrance of these cells, which of course can then um, add for the passage of more virus. What happens eventually is that not only do the cells that are coming into the CNS and trafficking out again bring in HIV, but the local CNS cells that are tissue cells of the brain become infected. And for the most part, we think that those cells are the macrophages, which are perivascular macrophages. Some of these may be the monocytes turning into macrophages. And also the microglial cells, which are long-lived immune cells in the brain. None of these uh, uh, viruses seem to be infecting neurons, but we think that the injury to neurons is because of the toxic products that are released by these infected cells. So if the virus is around long enough, you can have injury to the neurons, dysfunction of the neurons, and in fact, in some cases, you can have death of neurons and you end up with brain atrophy and other kind of permanent problems. So what I'm telling you is that basically there's this buildup of inflammation in the brain and that there are these cells that can become infected, which are resonant brain cells. One of the ways that we can assess whether or not there are locally infected cells, so cells that are actually potentially a reservoir that are producing virus themselves in the CNS, is to compare viruses that we find in the blood with viruses that we found from the CNS compartment. And the easiest way we've looked at this in research studies is to look at the CSF viruses compared to the blood viruses. If we find unique viruses, now shown in blue, um, in the CSF or in the brain compartment, it suggests that there is a local site of replication of HIV, which is distinct from the blood, and suggests formation of a reservoir. So the first question is, what's the evidence that we really do have this process going on? What's the evidence that there is a reservoir? And one possibility is to say, is there a footprint that there's persistent inflammation of these cells that we know are infected? So the macrophages and the microglial cells, are they, are they persistently abnormal in people who are on suppressive therapy? And there's a really nice um, sort of collection, I think, of complementary data that's come from a number of different types of studies in different groups, suggesting that using various different measures, we do find persistent abnormality and activation of these cells in the CNS compartment. So on the upper left, I'm showing you um, pictures from posito positron emission tomography or PET scanning, where a ligand is used in the PET scan that's specific for activated microglial cells. So this is something that's telling you that there's abnormally enhanced inflammation of the microglia. And in this study, in a small number of people who were on long-term therapy, they had um, excess levels of activated microglia in different brain regions shown with these yellow um, uh, blocks here that suggest that there's persistent activated microglia even in well-suppressed asymptomatic people. On the upper right, we have a little bit of brain autopsy data from people who died on uh, suppressive therapy. So as you guys probably know, from many times when people are dying um, from other causes or from cancers or from HIV complications, they may often stop their meds. But there have been a, a few unique studies, and I'm gonna show you more data from one of them, where people who either died of sudden death or they die in something like a car accident have an autopsy and they have tissue available from those uh, samples. 
And what we can see here is um, on the left of that figure, the brain autopsy data from people who are on suppressive therapy compared to people who don't have HIV show really increased levels of these activated microglia or CD68 positive cells. At the bottom, I'm showing you data from a marker that we've used extensively in research studies called CSF neopterin. Neopterin can be measured, actually some clinical labs, I know Yale has CSF neopterin as a clinical measure, can be measured in um, people to assess the level of macrophage activation. And we think of it as if it's found in the CSF, it's almost wholly produced in the CNS compartment. CSF neopterin can be elevated in people even who have normal plasma neopterin, so we know it's not just flowing from um, macrophages in the rest of the body. And what we've found is that people who are on more than 10 years of suppressive therapy with undetectable plasma viral loads still have persistently elevated levels of CSF neopterin, even when their plasma normalizes. And that in fact, this study showed that this was higher in people who had a positive HIV RNA level using a single copy assay. So they were well suppressed using standard measures, but if you use a single copy assay on the CSF specimen, and you find that they're positive, they also have higher levels of this immune activation marker. So all of this suggests that there's persistent inflammation. But what about viral infection? What about the possibility that the virus is actually hiding in, this, in the brain, um, either persistently in a latent form as DNA, or even being replicating and uh, detecting RNA? And this is really a unique study, and I'm uh, really happy to be able to show this because we didn't have this data for a long time. As I mentioned, it's hard to find brain tissue samples from people who are donors who um, were fully suppressed um, at the time that they passed away. This is data from a sudden death study. Actually, I think it's run by Priscilla Shu and some other cardiologists at UCSF. But Joe Wong and Steve Uckel and others who are interested in um, reservoirs for HIV decided to team up with them and obtain tissue from a variety of different body sites where basically they decided to look at the amount of HIV DNA found in the tissues. And surprisingly, they didn't actually expect to find any HIV DNA in the brain tissue. But um, as you can see here, the first column is actually the amount of HIV DNA in frontal brain tissue, and they found that there were ele uh, elevated levels, or there were abnormal levels in basically everybody that was examined. And in fact, some of the levels in HIV DNA in the brain equaled that in some of the other areas that we think of as classically HIV reservoirs, such as lymph node or gut. So this was really some of the first data to show that there is actually probably integrated HIV in the brain in people who are on well-suppressive therapy. They did note, however, in this study that they hardly ever were able to measure HIV RNA in brain tissue, whether or not they were using the most sensitive methods or whether or not there simply is not a lot of HIV production or replication in the setting of suppressive therapy. I think we still need to know. So I just talked to you about a group of people who had sudden death when they were asymptomatic, had no neurological syndromes or conditions, and they just were found to have um, latent HIV in the brain. This is an example of something which I think has really emerged in the field as being a really extremely rare syndrome, but something that many of us have seen one or two cases of. And this is the syndrome of CNS escape or CSF escape. This is a patient who's very much like the patient that I mentioned in the uh, quiz at the beginning, which is somebody who's had a well-suppressed viral load over eight years. The red dots here are the plasma viral load at every single one of his follow-up visits at the Nathan Smith Clinic at Yale over eight years always either undetectable or um, at you know, less than 20 copies. And then at about eight years, he presented with a new onset progressive neurologic disorder over about uh, four weeks. So it really wasn't something that was just sort of stable, percolating along. It was something that was new and progressive. 
And at that time, he was on a suppressive regimen with a CD4 count of 308, and he'd had a Nader CD4 of 60. What happened was that the astute uh, ID physicians who were caring for this patient before I came to Yale decided to do a lumbar puncture as part of his evaluation, and what they found is he actually had a detectable HIV RNA in the CSF compartment, despite the fact that at the same day, it was undetectable still in the plasma. And for this patient, he also had quite a robust inflammatory response with the CSF white cell count of 26, and normal being less than five. We don't typically see elevated white cell counts in people on suppressive therapy as long as they're doing fine. So here we now have an inflammatory syndrome with production of HIV RNA in the CNS compartment, not in the blood, and somebody presenting with neurological symptoms. And this is being termed CNS escape or CSF escape because it's almost as if the virus is replicating out of this compartment despite the fact it's escaping therapy. And what are some of the reasons this can happen? One possibility is that the virus that's being produced in the CNS compartment is actually resistant to the drugs that the patient is successfully being treated with. And so the virus that was um, obtained from this particular patient was genotyped the same way we genotype plasma virus. They found this set of mutations identified on the left, and in fact, when the Stanford Drug Resistance Database uh, algorithm was run, he was resistant to every single drug. The CSF virus was resistant to every single drug in his current regimen. So it explains, I think, why he has this virus being produced, despite the fact that he's on a suppressive regimen. But what this completely doesn't explain is why does this happen, and I don't think we know. One possibility, perhaps, is that maybe lower levels of tissue concentration of some of these drugs may, over a long time, somehow seed the, um, the development of resistance in this compartment. But it still means that there must have been, for all those eight years, some latently infected cells that then somehow were instigated to start replication at this time. And this is really an area of super active research. Not because we think this is a common syndrome, and I'll tell you, I do LPs for my research on tons of patients. I did three on Wednesday. Um, who were on suppressive therapy, and almost none of them have detectable CSF virus. So it's not something that we're saying that, oh, many, many people are walking around with a syndrome like this. But what this does tell us, though, is that it's proof of concept that this can happen. It's proof of concept that there can be replication in a compartment outside of the primary systemic compartment, in this case, in the brain. For this gentleman, actually, he had addition of a couple of drugs to his regimen, and he had complete resolution of his signs and symptoms. In fact, we couldn't justify doing an LP because he wasn't part of a research protocol to follow up. But I think if he did this, um, it would be undetectable because he had complete improvement. And this was a number of years ago. So to think a little bit about what may be a cause of the CNS escape, one of the things I talked to you about is the symptomatic escape in, in a case of somebody with viral drug resistance. And really there, the viral drug resistance, when addressed, seemed to improve the patient's symptoms and signs. But another possibility is that there may be some people who are asymptomatic but actually have low levels of virus. And there's been, again, a lot of attention at CORE the last couple of years. We've had a number of really good presentations on this. And this was one of them. This is something that's, uh, this is the, the THINK study, which is a study looking simply at people who don't have any symptoms but who have suppressed HIV and doing LPs in them in sort of a screening manner. And what was found in this study is that there was an individual who started treatment, and the red line is the plasma viral load, and after, and all of those viral loads were known, he w went on suppressive therapy, was successfully suppressed, but when he entered the THINK study at time T1, he had a detectable CSF viral load. Because of the fact that this was detectable, this was repeated again um, another 10 months after this, and basically was found again to be detectable viral load. So here is a patient who doesn't have any symptoms at all, but seems to have this persistent low-level virus in his CNS compartment. Why is that? 
So one thing is there haven't been any drug resistance mutations found in this CSF virus, but what was found is that when an assay was done to examine whether or not it looked like this virus was being produced by T cells or by macrophage lineage cells, there is a signal suggesting that that second virus that was detected actually was being produced to some level by macrophage lineage cells. So again, this may get back to this question of where is this reservoir potentially in the macrophage, and maybe in some people there's low-level persistent macrophage infection that may be releasing a low-level virus over time. Maybe if this wasn't identified at this point, this patient would go along later to develop a symptomatic disease, but we really aren't sure. So I want to switch gears to the next question of if this is something that's established in the CNS, if there's um, integrated HIV DNA in the brain, if there's some production of HIV RNA or inflammation in the brain, when does this actually start? When in the course of infection do we need to be worried about this? And this is an example of a patient, a real patient, who um, came in with probable recent seroconversion, so probably the, within the previous year. He's not on any medications, he's an electrical engineer, he has a very good support network and says, you know, I'm doing really well, I really don't want to start any HIV medications, I'm afraid of their side effects, I'm afraid of what they're going to do to me. Um, you can see his CD4 counts are really sort of um, moderate and his viral loads are really not that high. Of course, the guidelines say start, say start therapy, but what are you going to tell this patient in terms of one of his major concerns is I really want to be able to protect my brain. I'm an electrical engineer. I don't want to have any cognitive problems. So what do we tell him about how early the CNS may be affected by HIV? And so this is the question of when these reservoirs may be established. And the next couple of slides are data from two different studies. This, these are two studies that are focused specifically on looking at people with acute and early HIV infection. And this is actually a timeline of days post-transmission on the x-axis. And every data point here is the plasma viral load of an individual on the day he or she enrolled in our research study. So you can see that those people who were in the first 30 days had the very, very high peak plasma viral loads. And people who enrolled soon after that were more of a viral set point in terms of their plasma viral loads. These individuals from the two studies, one is an acute study in the first 30 days and then a more of an early infection study, subsequently, and this is the kind of trajectory of expected plasma viral load, this, the same time they had their plasma enrollment, they also gave a CSF sample. And these now, um, on top of the, the red is the blue symbols which are showing the CSF viral loads of these same people at the same time points. So here, I think just to focus specifically on the CSF, you can see, first of all, the trajectory is probably pretty similar to what we're seeing systemically, and it makes sense. There's a burst of virus trafficking, and then maybe that uh, tapers off a little bit. But what you see here is that almost everyone in the study had a detectable CSF viral load within the first year of infection. And in fact, some people had up to a million copies of CSF HIV RNA um, within the first month or two of infection. So, that's telling us what? That's telling us that the virus is trafficking in. It's passing through. It may not be staying, um, although we have further data that suggests that really once it's there, we have persistent infection. So we know that the virus is trafficking in early. What's the consequence of that? And I showed you in that schematic that viral infection can stimulate an inflammatory cascade, and in fact, we can find inflammation of macrophages. I mentioned CSF neopterin, which is a marker of macrophage activation. And in this study, we measured the CSF neopterins of each individual at the time that they donated their CSF. Again, each individual symbol is just a different person's data, and it's showing basically that this um, 
dotted line being the normal CSF neoprene level in someone who doesn't have an inflammatory neurologic disease and does not have HIV, pretty much everybody in the study almost had an elevated CSF neoprene at the time that they were enrolled. And if you actually leave people off treatment and observe what happens to their CSF neoprene over the first couple of years of infection, it just continues to rise. So basically, we're establishing that inflammatory environment, particularly of the cells, the macrophages, that we know are the long-term site of persistent infection of HIV. The other thing that this study, one of these studies have looked at a little bit is we've looked at whether or not there's any injury to the brain during this early period of infection. And what I'm showing here on the left is the data of the level of a marker called neurofilament light chain. NFL is a marker of axonal injury. So if NFL goes up, it means that neurons and axons are actually being damaged. It's not just inflammation, it's ju not just the presence of the virus, it's actually showing brain injury. And what you can see here is the furthest on the left is an, a group of HIV negatives. The next in the group is a group with acute HIV. So this was the furthest to the left of those, those other earlier slides, people within the first 30 days of infection. This is from a study in Thailand, showing that they didn't seem to have any elevations or any neuronal injury in that first month or so of infection. But the next group is a group with primary HIV. They were all recruited within the first year of infection, average of three months after infection. And as you can see, there is a a bump at this point, so that within that first year, there is a substantial proportion of people, about half of the people, who have elevated NFL, and it's actually not any different from people who have chronic HIV infection who are not treated. So again, this is suggesting that even in the early course of infection, there's inflammation, the neoprene goes up, and we also have some mild neuronal injury. On the right is just a, a graph that's showing that the relationship between the neuronal injury and the inflammatory marker of the neoprene suggests that the uh, neuronal injury is really tied to inflammation, which is something that we know. So finally, there's the question of the reservoir, and I talked about whether or not the virus is getting in or coming out. We can say that the virus is present, but until we really can say that there's viral replication that's uniquely happening in the CNS compartment, why would we think it necessarily means there's a reservoir? And so we were able in one of our studies to observe people, this is before the time of test and treat, where people entered a study and said, you know, I'm really happy to be longitudinally followed with longitudinal LPs and blood draws, but I really don't want to start treatment yet. And so what we did is we were able to look at the viral loads in the CSF compartment over time and observe that actually they persisted or even went up without treatment in that compartment over, over the first couple of years of infection. And then what we were able to do is take samples from people who persisted off of therapy and do viral sequencing. So I mentioned that if sequences are different between the two compartments, it suggests that there's actually a local replication. And this is um, one of the clearest examples of what we found in several of these longitudinally paired samples from CSF and blood in people in the early stages of infection. This is a, a phylogenetic tree. So basically what this is showing is the relationships between the viruses um, it, from the CSF shown in blue circles and the plasma shown in the red or kind of orangish triangles. And what you can see for this tree is that the distance, the horizontal distance of, along an axis is a distance that suggests differences between sequences. And most of the sequences around this circle, which are collected at 165, 352, 644, and 918 days after infection, so longitudinally over about two years, most of these viruses are all mixed together, which suggests that things you're finding in the CSF are trafficking from the blood. But starting at about four months after infection, there were a set of viruses that were only found in the CNS compartment, 
and this is denoted in these light blue circles. And then over time, it actually replicated and was still only uniquely found in the CSF. So what this is telling us, and this is again, there were several people in this fairly small study that had an example of this, suggesting that people can have local viral replication just in the CNS compartment in the first year of infection, and this may be the establishment of the reservoir. So I'm gonna talk about a hypothetical issue, which is that as people um, start to look at cure strategies, do we need to be considering what the effects of these cure strategies could be in the brain? And there are a lot of different cure strategies. We're not gonna sum them up all today, but one of the cure strategies particularly focuses on um, kick and kill, or basically kill, uh, kicking out latent HIV from, from reservoirs, releasing HIV, and then depending on the immune system or potentially outside vaccination or something else, to induce then killing of those infected cells that have now been exposed. So one of the things we've been concerned about is that what happens if there are brain reservoirs where the virus is latently embedded and hiding and we suddenly kick out the virus in that compartment? Are we gonna induce a lot of inflammation? Are we gonna lose viral control because suddenly those patients who have maybe lower levels of antiretroviral drugs locally in that compartment may not be able to control replication? I think there's a lot of important questions. On the other hand, it may mean that we eliminate HIV from the brain reservoir, which would be a great outcome. So the next two slides are just showing a couple of different ways to think about this. And I've teamed up with um, a group of people, this is in Thailand, who are investigating a lot of different cure strategies. And what we're doing now, and other investigators around the world are doing this as well, is thinking, can we monitor the CNS compartment during these cure strategy um, investigations? So in this case, I'm just showing on the top a sort of timeline of when it might be important to look at the CNS, either with brain imaging, you can look for inflammation or other kinds of changes, or to do spinal taps, or even to do neuropsychological testing. Either when the person is suppressed on treatment, maybe um, when they're getting the intervention, if the intervention is designed, for example, to kick out virus, should we be testing the CSF, examining the CNS during that period? And then as many people know that there's actually uh, treatment interruption as part of a lot of these types of studies. One of the other questions is, where does the virus rebound during treatment interruption? Should we be monitoring the CNS? So this next slide is um, a summary, and this is presented at the IAS this summer, of one such kind of CNS monitoring study. And this is a study where people who were on suppressive therapy that had been started during acute HIV infection then had evaluations while they were receiving a cocktail that included an HDAC inhibitor, one of these kick and kill strategies that's intended to sort of release HIV from the latent reservoir. And then patients had um, treatment interruption. So the goal of the study was to look to see whether getting the intervention would reduce viral rebound in the plasma. And you can see that these people had undetectable plasma viral loads during the baseline, during the intervention, but after treatment interruption, they all had viral rebound. What we did then is we looked in the spinal fluid and we looked to see whether or not they had undetectable viruses at baseline and then looked to see what happened during the, the kick and kill strategy. Fortunately, in this study, we didn't find any negative effect of the HDAC inhibitor in terms of releasing virus, but we did see that virus rebounded in the CSF compartment after treatment interruption, which we know happens. We also did look at other markers. So we have the viral markers. We looked at measures of inflammation. And we did find that in one patient, out of a small number of people who had spinal taps, there was an increase in the CSF protein during this intervention, suggesting maybe an induction of inflammation. We also saw that there was increase in inflammation after the stopping treatment. So 
I'm going to just sum up then about optimizing brain health in our patients. And I think this is really um, probably obvious from a lot of the different types of tenets that I've been producing. But first of all, we wanted to start treatment early. I, I showed the data suggesting that even in the first months of infection, we can have neuronal injury in our patients. What we did do is we looked at uh, the post-treatment data of this NFL marker in people who had started treatment during acute infection versus chronic infection. And basically, we didn't find any evidence that if you had started treatment during acute infection, you had any neuronal injury after a year out. We also did some neuropsych testing, and this is shown on the right side, suggesting that people who um, started treatment early in acute infection had normal testing at baseline and had persistently normal testing at follow-up. And finally, there's a really nice study done by a, a group here in New York City, Teresa Evering at the Aaron Diamond Research Institute, where she looked at the cognitive outcomes of individuals recruited in New York City who had started treatment during primary infection, within the first year of infection. She actually found that in follow-up, they had normal neurocognition compared to age-matched and education-matched controls, suggesting really a preservation of treatment, of early treatment. Um, the other thing, the obvious thing, is to encourage adherence in all of our patients, and this is just, this is an old study, but it demonstrates the fact that when you interrupt treatment, which is time zero on all of these graphs, not only do you have plasma viral load, load rebound, but you have CSF viral load rebound in the middle graph, and you also have inflammation in the brain. CSF white counts can go up really high when people interrupt therapy, and we know this is bad in terms of causing injury in the brain. So you really want to tell your patients that they should be adherent. The final thing is to think about whether or not CNS penetration matters. And this slide, hopefully, is going to be in your handout, so you can look at these various studies. But the conclusion of these various studies that have tried to look at whether targeting the CNS with intensified regimens or CNS penetrating regimens really makes a difference, and there is not really clear data. So there's an ongoing study right now in the ACTG, and this is looking specifically at ART intensification and whether or not it can benefit the CNS in people who are already on a suppressive regimen but who have a mild neurocognitive disorder. Um, there are lots of sites enrolling, and actually shout out again to Valerie Hughes because they're enrolling at Cornell's site, thank you. And we've also had a great amount of enrollment and uptake at the New Jersey site. So if you have patients that you think would be interested in this study, I really encourage you to uh, suggest that they uh, consider it. So finally, for the first time in 2016, the DHHS guidelines include CNS considerations in treatment of HIV. Obviously, we're treating everybody at the time of diagnosis, but now, as you guys know, we talked about this earlier, efavirenz is no longer in the first-line recommended therapy because of CNS complications primarily. Um, we have new specific treatment uh, recommendations for people who present with HIV-associated dementia, and this is really um, avoiding efavirenz and going for regimens with presumed higher CNS penetration. And finally is the question of evaluating this question of symptomatic CNS escape. So European guidelines have had this for a long time, but this is the first time we now have guidelines suggesting that people should get an LP and look and see whether patients who are presenting with new neurologic syndromes potentially have the syndrome of CNS escape. So thanks very much for your attention. This is all my acknowledgments, and um, we really specifically want to acknowledge all the study participants. So any of you and many of you are involved with research Participants who um, do LPs, do neuropsych testing, this kind of thing, are incredibly generous. And I want to end with the final question to see if there's sort of a change in the outcome. So again, we have a patient who's on treatment. What's the next step in the patient's management? And I'll give you a second to try to answer that. Oh, okay, that's great. Hey, there was a student there. Do you want to jump in? Wasn't there? Perfect.
All right, so great. And you'll see here, oh, there is a big learning from what I just talked about. So thanks very much. The, the takeaway here is this is somebody who's on a suppressive regimen, but we're concerned that there may be CNS escape. I think that uh, neuropsychological testing is really, really valuable in assessing sort of the mild cognitive disorders in our patients, but it can take months, <laughs> and you don't want to delay in looking for the syndrome of CNS escape. So thanks very much. We have time for questions. Again, mics in the front or the question cards. Um, Serena, can you talk about reimbursement for neurological, neuropsych testing? So um, I think it depends on where the referral is going for neuropsych testing. Um, what I have found, and this is completely my own personal experience, is that if I try to refer my Medicaid patients or my uninsured patients to the university neuropsych testing service, it's not available. But actually, in my case, there is a rehab hospital that takes patients with all insurance and no insurance, and I can refer patients there, and I think they must be getting some form of reimbursement. I should know, but I do know that it, it's something that can be available, but I think the reimbursement level is fairly low. Um, <clears throat> since not all antivirals enter the CNS, why doesn't everyone eventually get drug resistant? Yeah, that's a great question. So actually, we think that most antivirals do enter the CNS, but that some of the studies have suggested that the CSF levels of some of these drugs are lower than the plasma levels, and some of them may don't not reach the IC50s or IC90s of the levels that we um, typically think are necessary to be effective. So I think that the, probably one of the reasons is that a major, major block in um, getting sort of sustained CNS replication is simply the fact that we have three drug regimens. So that if a couple of the drugs are effective, there is going to be a likelihood that you're going to be suppressing the virus. I do think that there have been a couple of studies coming out of Europe, especially from Spain, looking at two drug regimens and finding higher levels of CSF escape in individuals who are treated with two drug regimens, suggesting that maybe the issue of lower CNS penetration comes into higher play when you have a lower drug regimen. But I think it's an important issue. I, I think that the other issue probably is that we don't need that much drug to get in. The final thing actually is there was a nice presentation at Troy last year suggesting that even when CSF levels are low, brain macrophage levels of drug penetration may be better than we're looking at in the CSF. That's a long answer. <laughs> uh, do you recommend using the ART uh, drugs with better CNS penetration? No. <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, I think that for the most part in our patients, the most important drugs for them to be taking are drugs that suppress their plasma virus. And that as long as they're getting something that's effective in the plasma, we're pretty much protecting the brain. We're reducing trafficking of additional virus into the CNS compartment, and I don't think there is any data to suggest that um, targeting the CNS in an otherwise healthy patient is an important thing to do. I think that there is data to suggest, and I went over this quickly, but there's a couple of papers to suggest that in people with um, significant neurocognitive disease and dementia, it is important to target the CNS, but I would only recommend in those circumstances. Controversial or anything? Good. Um, elite controllers, what do we know about uh, HIV RNA and the CNS? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, 
there's very, very little data about that. We've done a couple of studies. Uh, this was based at UCSF a number of years ago where we had lumbar punctures in people who were elite controllers. And having you know something like 10 or 20 data points from different people found zero viral load detectable in those patients. These are people who were truly elite controllers, less than 50 copies in the blood. Um, and I have never seen anyone who's an elite controller present with a progressive neurologic disease and find a CSF viral load, except Michael Yin from Columbia emailed me last week about a patient who had a viral load of less than 100 in the plasma, has been considered an elite, and his CSF viral load with progressive neurologic disease is over 1,000. So I think there may be in some of these low-level controllers, we may have a risk at some point of CNS disease, but we don't have any data from elites to suggest that. Can you comment on the use of uh, MRI in terms of workup for someone with, uh, say, memory difficulties? When do, you, when do you order it? Yeah, so I typically order an MRI early in my workup when I have people that are referred to me for memory difficulties. And this is partly because sometimes there's an MRI signature of something else. So for example, if they have significant atrophy of the frontal lobes, it actually suggests another diagnosis, which is a neurologic diagnosis of frontotemporal dementia. Um, occasionally also you can have a frontal lobe abnormality such as a tumor or inflammatory infection that can be sort of hard to find on exam, but it can present with cognitive problems. For the most part, almost all the patients that, that I see where I do an MRI, they almost all have brain atrophy. I think it's nonspecific. I think it's basically part of the sequela of having HIV infection that was untreated at some point. Okay, great. I think we're going to stop there. Thank you, Serena.